2 Samuel 9. We'll read it and then we'll pray. David asked, Is there anyone still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of Saul's household named Ziba. They summoned him to appear before David and the king said to him, Are you Ziba? At your service, he replied. The king asked, Is there no one still alive from the house of Saul to whom I can show God's kindness? Ziba answered the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is lame in both feet. Where is he? The king asked. Ziba answered, He is at the house of Machir, son of Amiel, in Lodibar. So King David had him brought from Lodibar, from the house of Machir, son of Amiel. When Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David, he bowed down to pay him honour. David said, Mephibosheth, at your service, he replied. Don't be afraid, David said to him, for I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan. I will restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather Saul, and you will always eat at my table. Mephibosheth bowed down and said, What is your servant, that you should notice a dead dog like me? Then the king summoned Ziba, Saul's steward, and said to him, I have given your master's grandson everything that belonged to Saul and his family. You and your sons and your servants are to farm the land for him and bring in the crops, so that your master's grandson may be provided for, and Mephibosheth's grandson of your master will always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, Your servant will do whatever my lord, the king, commands his servant to do. So Mephibosheth ate at at David's table like one of the king's sons. Mephibosheth had a young son named Micah, and all members of Ziba's household were servants of Mephibosheth. And Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem because he always ate at the king's table. He was lame in both feet. Um, I'm reading the gospel once again to myself for my own edification and benefit. I'm reading Mark because it's the shortest one, because I'm a bear of little brain and I like short books. In the uh, gospels, that's Matthew, Mark and Luke and John. But in the gospels, especially Matthew, Mark and Luke, uh, Jesus is called many names, he has many titles. Um, so sometimes you read very infrequently, Jesus is called the son of Moses, something like that. Often you hear son of Abraham. Most often, most frequently, you hear son of David. Now, that title, especially in Matthew's gospel that we're going back to in September, uh, son of David, that alludes to Jesus' Jewish heritage, his family line. He's he's from the the line of David. It uh, also explains his kingly nature, his kingship. He's following the kingly steps and heritage of King David, the greatest king of Israel. But it doesn't just describe his heritage or his descendant nature. Every time we look at King David in the Old Testament, when he's having a good day and a good year, he has some pretty ropey experiences as well. But when David is is, uh, at the peak of his prowess, when he is being sensitive to God's word, when he's being empowered by God's spirit, when we look at King David in the Old Testament, we do get a really good understanding of who King Jesus is. So it's not just a heritage marker. It's not just a family tree. It's not just who do you think you are. That's why we're looking at David this morning from 2 Samuel 9. Because we want to understand, if uh, we're Christians here this morning, we want to understand our salvation afresh. We want to understand our king afresh. 
and we want to understand what David does, to whom and why, so that we understand the gospel afresh. And if you're not yet a Christian, it's great that you're here, and we want you to listen into God's word as well. What does David give? Who does he give it to? And how on earth can he do such a thing? Let's look at those three things. What does David give? First of all, what does David give? Point point number one. It's there in verse one, sentence one, sentence three, sentence seven. One, three, and seven. Can you see a phrase that comes up? Uh, He says, I'm searching for, let's call him Methy. Uh, He's not a curry. I'm searching for Methibosheth because I want to show him what? What does it say in one, three, and seven? I want to show him kindness. I want to show him God's kindness. It gets more specific. I surely, I want to find this man because I want to show him the kindness of God. Now, that's a really lettuce, limp kind of definition. It's this Hebrew word called hesed. You need to spit at people when you say it properly, hesed. So if you're in the front row, you're in trouble, bring your uh, towel next week, an umbrella. But hesed means covenant, steadfast love. It's a covenantal love that only God models fully and completely in a 3D way. Where is someone to whom I can show the covenant love of God, says David. He's having a good day. Not a bad day. He had quite a few of those. See, David made a promise years back. So far back he could easily have forgotten it. But David was looking for someone to whom he could fulfill his duty that he made to a great friend of his called Jonathan and a God to whom no one could see. Where is someone to whom I can show the kindness, the chesed of God, Where is someone to whom I can do a great kindness? Now, the way we deal with people in the modern world is no longer chesed. I'm trying to spit at Josh. Chesed love. It's no longer chesed love anymore. We're not very covenantal. Marriage is on the decline if you look at the uh, Office of Statistics. But whether we're married or not, the way we deal with even our friends is not chesed love. As sociologists, people that look at how society works, anthropologists, that's people who study people from different cultures, They have written over the last 30 years quite exclusively and extensively on how people's relationships have changed. We don't love one another deeply anymore. We don't persevere in friendships and relationships. Instead of uh, covenantal relationships, we are now consumer. So I will be your friend as long as it suits me. I will be your partner as long as I get something back. When I get a better offer, when I see someone who could be a better lover, someone who could be a better friend, you're out of here. When things get too costly, I'm off. So commitment is a dirty word. Covenantal relationships is no longer a reality. We're afraid to commit. It's there in society, it's there in the church as well. So we'd love you to be part of a small group, says a pastor to a group of people. And they say, well, that's great. What night of the week is it? Well, it's Wednesday. I use that because we meet on Tuesdays mostly. They say it's a Wednesday. Well, the trouble is I do something once a month on a Wednesday. Now, that may be a good thing, or it may reveal an issue with commitment. Would you go on the crèche rotor, says a pastor to a church member. Well, the thing is, I really like uh, listening to the messages, because my pastor's great, and he's about to go on holiday, and I can't wait till he comes back. Um, If someone said that, that might be true. Your pastor may well be great. He may well be going on a holiday to France soon, or somewhere else in the universe. But does it reveal that, that you have a desire to grow, or is it that you don't want to serve? Here is David, he says, I am desperate to find someone to whom I can show the kindness of God because I've promised to my best friend in the world, Jonathan, and I've promised to God that I will show and I will keep my covenant relationship with my friend Jonathan and with my uh, God of the heavens. I have a heart to serve someone out of a reflexive love of all that God has done for me. 
If you've been touched, as I have, by Rob's words, by Ruth's words, by Michelle's commitment, then the worst thing you could do is if you resolve in your spirit to say, I have a neighbour who struggles with mental health issues. I know someone who's disabled and they live across the road from me or I work next to them. The worst thing you can do with someone like that or anybody is to start a relationship with them and then back out. To say, I, I, I've been affected by what Rob said. I've been touched by what Ruth said. And man, Michelle, why would you be involved in a, in a job like that? That must be so difficult. You must get so many knocks back. The worst thing you could do is to start and then pull back. The best thing you could do is to start and to continue with covenant faithfulness and love. To say, I'm going to be with you through thick and thin. Yes, you can call me in the darkest hours of night. Yes, you can call me when you need to be popped to the shops. I might always not always be able to help, but you can, I can be the first person on the speed dial for you. That would be a great thing to do. And in so doing, you would be showing the hesed love of God, the kindness of God to someone else. But consider David, it's there in verse 3, saying, I want to show you God's kindness. Not just covenantal love, it's God's kindness. I want to be someone who's committed to you. I don't want to be a quitter. I don't want to be a consumer. When you see the love of God, when you see the costly love of God, that does change a hard heart to a soft heart. You're not motivated by pity. It is compassion. It is conviction of the gospel truth and that changes how you deal with people. You don't look down at people in a pity party. You look at them straight in the eye and you say, I love you in the image of God. I'm just like you. I want to show you the love of God. I want to be kind to you. I'm going to show you not pity, but compassion. You're always willing to take a hit, even if it's sleep. You're always willing to take a hit, even if it's a few miles out of your journey. You're always willing to take a hit, even if it's your time. And all the person needs to do is talk, and you need to listen. And here's the irony. You think, oh, I could never do that. You don't know how busy I am. You don't know how many things I've got in my diary. I'm fed up with the phone. I think it's an object of evil. Is that just my thinking? I don't know. But here's the thing. Were you to engage in covenantal love with someone else, and we're not just talking marriage, we're talking deep, lasting friendships on into the future, it may be scary at first, but actually it's very, very liberating. It's nothing like being a part of a community, as Ruth alluded to, that sticks together through thick and thin, whether it's a physical ailment of age, stage of life, whether it's mental health issues. Knowing a community that really loves you, and that you can let it all hang out at certain appropriate times, when days have been hard, when mornings have been difficult, that's a great and liberating and a precious thing. That's what David wanted to do. He wanted to show the compassion of God and the covenantal love of God to another. And his name was Methi. We call him Methibosheth. But why? To whom does he give it? He gives it to this man, second point, Methibosheth. To whom does he give it? He wants to give God's kindness, but to who? Now, Mephibosheth, it says, verse 3, verse 13, he was crippled in both feet. He was lame in both feet. The first time we hear about him is in 2 Samuel 4.4. In 2 Samuel 4.4, his father, Ishbosheth, is about to get killed. And so a nursemaid, so to speak, who cares for him, picks him up and runs away. She's trying to save his life. They're fleeing for their safety. And in a terrible moment, she drops him accidentally. And because of this accident, he's crippled in both feet for the rest of his life. That's what happens in 2 Samuel 4.4. So he's not just a a social outcast because of a disability. He He would have been looked down upon. He's also an enemy because he's from a different tribe. He's a threat to King David. And these two themes run through the passage. He's the grandson of King Saul, who was the predecessor to David. 
and he's called into David's presence. And notice verse 6, what happens. Mephibosheth comes into the king's honour. In verse 6, he bows down to pay him honour. Literally, he prostrates himself. He's looking not up in the sky, he's looking at the floor. I don't want to look in the king's eye. And notice verse 7. Why does David the king say, don't be afraid? Why is there this lovely sentence? Verse 8, what is your servant that you should notice a dead dog like me? I wish I had a got an American accent at that point. I'm just a dead dog. Don't even look at me. I'm going to prostrate myself before the king. Why would he respond in like that way? Why would he not just say, I'm the king's servant. Do with me as you will. Because he's terrified. Mephibosheth is terrified, not socially, but because he's a rival. And he thinks the king has summoned him before him to end his life, to take his head away from his shoulders. Everybody did this in the ancient Near East. When a new regime, just look at the Egyptians as well, when a new regime came into power, it was the time of purge. It was purging season. That you would literally wipe out every man, woman and child from the opposing empire, from the opposing tribe. And that's what Mephibosheth thought was going to happen. Don't be afraid, verse 7. Why is he afraid? Because he thinks he's going to die. I'm just a dead dog. Don't even look at me, verse 8. He thought, with the new king on the throne, it wouldn't just be the end of any chance he had of getting to the throne. He thought it was going to be the end of his life. It was time to die. The only way for David to be secure in his kingship is if there's no rivals. As long as Mephibosheth is still alive, he's the rallying point. People who are still loyal in the kingdom to King Saul could find him and promote him. There could be a revolt, there could be an uprising with Mephibosheth as king. And yet David says, no, 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 verse 7, I'm going to empower you. You can have, verse 7, all your grandfather Saul's land back. He empowers him emotionally and relationally. Look at verse 10, I want you to eat at my table. Verse 11, Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. He's not even just down the end. He's not around the corner in a shady spot where you put people at your wedding that you don't really want to be there. He's right there. He's, a, he's treated like a son. He's given the best wines. He's given the greatest food. I want you in my family. You're not a social outcast anymore. I don't care, so to speak, about your feet. You're not defined by that. You're cared for and loved and acknowledged. I want to show you God's kindness to me, I want to just lavish you in that same love. Some love you might have never known before. You're going to be a son to me. You're going to be protected by me. Socially included, financially provided for, verse 7. You can have the land back. Verse 10 and 11, you can eat at my table. You're a son to me, Mephibosheth. At that very moment, I'm a dead dog. I'm terrified at that very moment when David thinks his life is going to end. David is a wonderful picture of God's graciousness and kindness. No severity here, no anger here. It's grace upon grace based on covenant love. When you see this, political barriers, they disappear. When you see the hesed love of God that he's showered upon his people. When you see that, political barriers disappear, tribal barriers disappear. Mephibosheth was from the tribe of Benjamin. Um, David is the tribe of Judah. So verse 10, you've got this wonderful picture. Different tribes coming around the king's table to celebrate what the king has done and what, how good God is. It's a wonderful picture that alludes to the Lord's Supper that we'll celebrate later of the king central to the communion of his people. Rest on every side. Which means, friends, no church should be monolithic. No church should look the same. 
Every church should be representative, not in a fake way, but of its demographic in a locality. So we want to be representative of the people of Epsom and Ewell. We want to have black people and brown people and people of Asian background and people of white background, white Anglo-Saxon Protestant. We want people from all the nations who live in Epsom to be in churches in Epsom. We don't want them to travel somewhere else. We want them to come, people who are old and young, people with disabilities, people who are fully abled, so to speak. And there's a wonderful picture of that there in verse 10. Here's David, he could banish this enemy for political means, for tribal means, for social means. No, 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 you come and sit at my table. I will provide for you. You're under my care and my security. Don't feel threatened. I'm going to treat you as a son. It's got grace upon grace. And it's this wonderful picture of the gospel. God coming after us. Where was Mr. Bethesda? He was up in Lodabar. He was up north. He was miles away. Servant, go and get him. Go and get him and bring him back where he should be. And I will care for him and I'll provide for him. And God does exactly the same thing. Friends, if you're new to the gospel, do not think, do not think, if I can be absolutely straight with you, that you're here this morning because you're pursuing God. If you're here this morning, it's because God is pursuing you. God always pursues people for his own glory's sake. We don't get ourselves clean, come to church and think that God will be pleased with us because we've had a good week, because we stopped watching pornography, because we're spending less on ourselves, because we're reading the Bible for the first time in a decade. If you're here this morning, it's because God is after you. God is pursuing you with his strong and sufficient love. And he wants you to hear his word. Here is Mephibosheth. Come down from Lodabar. And he's brought into his presence and he falls on his face. And that's exactly the experience of everyone who's become a Christian. When you see the grace of God, you should be rightly afraid. You should be falling on your face before the holiness and majesty of God. And yet, then God raises you up with his hands of hesed kindness and says, I treat you as a son. Come and eat at my table. In his service is perfect freedom and perfect joy that you'll find nowhere else. That's what the table's about. That's what the cross has made possible. But how? That's who he showed it to. How could David do it? How could he do such a thing? Let's be more practical as well. How could we do such a thing? How could we cross our boundaries because they're pretty deep politically? Well, did you vote in? Did you vote out? That's a pretty stark question that you could ask just first up on your first date with someone or uh, even at church. Christians must vote this way or that way. That's not the case. It's a, it's a free issue of conscience. And here we say in a consumer culture, how on earth can we commit to people when actually we're very self-centered? I certainly am. We need to see what David saw. Look at verse 7 again. I want to show you kindness. I want to give you covenantal love. Why? For the sake of your father, Jonathan. For the sake of your father, Jonathan. Now, here's the backstory to this passage. Never, ever do you want to land on a passage in the Bible without working out where it sits. There was Saul. He was the great king of his people. He was the great king of Israel. And uh, trouble was that God sent Samuel to anoint not Saul, His uh, spirit had moved away from Saul and to David. So Samuel came to anoint the next king. Not a wannabe, but one that God had picked out, and his name was David. Saul already had a son who was going to be king after him. His name was Jonathan. But Jonathan befriended David in uh, 1 Samuel 18 to 20. It's the most wonderful picture of friendship in the whole Bible, maybe outside of John 16, 17. David loved Jonathan. 
He perceived that David, not himself, was God's anointed king. And they make this wonderful covenant of friendship, 1 Samuel 18 to 20. Then there's a place, which is incredible, where Jonathan, rather than swearing allegiance to his father, actually swears allegiance to David. And he's in this really sticky spot trying to honour his dad and actually love his friend. He says, I will protect you even from my father. I'm going to be as loyal to you as I can, as loyal to my dad as I can, who's actually trying to kill you. And so Jonathan takes off his robe, he takes off his sword, and he gives it to his friend. And in that moment, as he sees God's anointed successor, he's giving up his throne. God wants you to be king, Jonathan says, not me. And sadly, Jonathan loses his life in a hopeless battle on Mount Gilboa. And here's what it means. David had a friend who loved him covenantally. His name was Jonathan. David had a friend who put himself in harm's way so that David was taken out of harm's way. David had a friend, he lost his throne. So David could have his throne. David had a friend like that. And in the gospel, so do you. David could love Mephibosheth. He could risk his life to love Mephibosheth because all that Jonathan had done for him. And this table points to the greatest friend ever, not Jonathan, but the one to whom Jonathan pointed. Because David had a friend who lost his earthly throne. We have a friend who lost his heavenly throne to save us. His name is Jesus, not Jonathan. David had a friend who died on Mount Gilboa for him. We have a friend who died on Mount Calvary for us. Jesus actually says in John 15, 15, I no longer call you servants. Instead, I've called you friends. You did not choose me. I chose you and appointed you to go and bear fruit. Greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. Therefore, love one another, says Jesus. There it is. Mephibosheth didn't deserve any of this table, didn't deserve his lamb back, didn't deserve to be treated as a son. Jonathan did. But Jonathan's work was imputed, was given to Mephibosheth. And Jesus' crosswork is imputed and given to us. That's the claim of Christianity. He comes to you, invites you to his father's table, and you say, I don't deserve it. That's the point. You don't deserve it. Jesus deserves it. But he gives it to us by faith. Once you understand that, that changes you. Or it should. It should change you from looking down on people to looking at them in the eye. It should change you so rather than pursuing people with pity or to make yourself feel better in a codependent way, you pursue people out of compassion and love. You want to commit to someone. You want to serve them. You want them number one on speed dial. You will drive a few miles out of your way to take them shopping. And that's what I want you to think about as you come to the table. Is there someone, if you're a Christian, in your mind's eye for whom you could be a covenantal friend to show the love of God, regardless of creed, race, colour, age, stage of life? Let's close with this. What, uh, one writer wrote this picked this up this week. What binds us together as we gather around this meal table? What binds us together is not a common education. It's not a common race. It's not common uh, income levels. It's not common politics. It's not common nationality. It's not common accent. It's not common jobs or anything like that. Christians come together because they've been loved by Jesus himself. 
They are a band of natural enemies who love one another for Jesus' sake. It would be great if we could love like that. Let's pray together.